Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. It's good to see you guys today. Uh, thank you for being at Encounter Church. My name is Chris Colsey. I'm the pastor here. And today we're going to continue this series that we've been engaging with through this entire month around this idea of me and my big fat mouth. I don't know about you, but sometimes your mouth can get you in trouble. Um, and I know, you know, maybe this isn't your problem, but sometimes when my mouth does get me in trouble, I keep digging the same hole that my mouth put me in in the first place. All right, um, so uh, what, what we're going to do today is we're going to continue um, a, a message from last week. So if you're new here, um, today's going to have a little bit of a different vibe in that I'm going to be hyper-practical and really kind of continuing this kind of second part of last week's message. Uh, last week's message was really this kind of powerful conversation around um, the power of our words and its impact to shape us out of this sentence um, that we're going to read again this morning from a New Testament letter. And um, last week was just kind of a really like rethinking the way we think about words. And this week I kind of said, hey, look, uh, this, there's so much in this, this one passage that we're going to have to break this into two pieces. Um, and today is a little bit more practical in the way that I want to take from last week. So um, you don't have to have heard. Uh, there's no need to have like heard part A to get part B, but I would encourage you if you're new here, um, the app that Jason referenced, you can get it for free. Um, you can listen to last week's message. Um, it really did set the stage for kind of at a deeper level, the power of our words and the reality that many of us in our lives that we're living are still being living, are still being lived in light of other words that were spoken to you. And so we just talked about how to start to work ourselves out of the words that you heard a long time ago that still live inside your head. And this week, I want to pick up and continue that power of conversation and just talk through for us um, in a kind of our short time together how to put into practice words that um, really do reflect hope and life. And so to start there, I want to play a little bit of a game with you. Um, it's a two-part game. So you're going to, I'm, I'm going to tap out a song and I, I want you at the end, I'm going to say, what song do you think that was? And you just feel free to be boldly, loudly wrong or right. All right. So um, pay attention to the tap. All right. For those musically inclined people, here we go. All right, say it loud. What song was that? Happy birthday. Okay, what else? That's me politely saying you're wrong. But I, I want to encourage, like, you know, I don't want to squash you. All right, so throw out another song that might have come to mind. It, it did. Replay. Okay, no. So, um, that, was, so that was the Star Spangled Banner. All right. So, you know, I'm not deducting points on that one. All right. And so um, we're going to go to the next one. That was a warm-up. I get that may have been a little tricky. You didn't come thinking you're going to hear that one. So let me give you a little one that's a little bit easier.
I love your suggestions. They're awesomely wrong, okay? That um, was Mary Had a Little Lamb, all right? Um, so thank you for participating. No one gets a prize today um, or a trophy. So um, thank you for playing along. Uh, you just experienced something that I think has a lot to teach us about why our communication fails so often. What you and I just experienced is probably at the root of so many of the failures that we have when we try to talk and engage with someone sitting on the other side in a deep conversation. And um, so this morning, that's what I want to do. I want to dig into this barrier, to this problem, to this thing that works against us. And in the midst of that, unpack how you and I can experience a different type of communication of how you and I can be equipped. It's the same equipping, in fact, that um, we looked at last week. There's some more words I want to focus in on in that passage. Um, If you were here last week or if you're new, um, we've already preloaded the message notes. We have the passage. Um, It comes from a letter written to a group of Christians living in the influential, affluent, educated city. Um, It's still a city that you can visit today in its ruins. It's still majestic. You can kind of even today get a sense for how kind of large and the full scope of what this city would have been like at its kind of center, kind of heyday. Um, Paul, who's the writer of this letter that we now call Ephesians, because it was written to a group of people in Ephesus, is writing them a letter to uh, explain and to unpack this Christian faith that has completely transformed the city. Um, You see, Paul um, becomes this messenger of Christianity. He had originally tried to stop it. Um, because he believed that it was completely wrong. He has an experience that transforms his life that leads him to realize that Christianity is, in fact, God's message for the world. And so he becomes its most chief kind of vocal um, leader. It, it would be almost as if, um, you know, this is almost shocking, but just to give you a sense of what it would have been like, um, it would have been like after September 11th, um, all of a sudden you picking up the New York Times and seeing that Osama bin Laden had become a New York firefighter. Okay, that jarring sense that you just felt, that was the experience of what it would have been like had you met Saul, who was what he he went by. He was kind of like Prince before Prince was Prince. Um, He was Saul, and then he had such a defining life experience, such a transforming moment with Jesus that he's like, I can't even go by my old name because I'm so different and new. And so he went by the name Paul, which means small. Because he was humble. There was something transformed inside of him. And I mean, and it's that kind of radical conversion. It's like an Osama bin Laden kind of figure after a terrorist attack, realizing he's wrong and going and actually getting on the other side. And so he begins to travel and spread this message and people are being transformed. And one of the cities that responds um, really well to his message is the city of Ephesus. Thousands upon thousands of people, um, their lives are completely transformed. In, in such a way that um, like the economic kind of structure of the city shifts because there was such a huge um, kind of financial market for trinkets to these idols that were sold outside of um, kind of these temples that were throughout the city. One of the temples was Artemis, um, who was a, kind of a god that the city um, worshipped. And, and so Artemis had a lot of trinkets on the outside. It's like whenever you go on a tourist 
when, you know, you walk in and there's the tourist shop and like even, you know, if you were downtown Boston, you can buy a lobster or, a, uh, you know, a baked bean, like you, just these little trinkets. And so there was a whole industry that had risen up around that Artemis temple. And now people aren't going to the Artemis temple because now Paul has showed up and he's like, Jesus is God. It's not Artemis. And so Artemis's kind of, you know, sales figures drop. People start to get panicky. The people who had made these statues and trinkets start to kind of have a conversation. They're like, Paul's going to take us under. We've got to do something. And so they start spreading lies and rumors, and a riot essentially breaks out in the city of Ephesus. It gets so large that um, the, the entire city floods into um, Ephesus, uh, the, the great theater of Ephesus. The great theater of Ephesus at its time could hold about 25,000 people. And that, that theater is actually still in existence today. Elton John, about, I think, a decade or a decade and a half ago, played a concert there. It's still a functioning place that people visit. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. Um, it can still seat thousands of people. And, and so here in this theater, the, the city runs in, and they begin to chant for two hours straight, Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. And Paul, who wants to tell people about Jesus, says, I'll go into the theater and tell them all about who Jesus is since they are convinced Artemis is God. And they're like, no, Paul, you shouldn't go in there because they'd already realized that the Ephesians were really good talkers, but they weren't good listeners. Because the moment someone had come into that theater to calm the riots down because of the Roman law at the time, if your city revolted, the Roman government would often send in troops and would completely crush a riot or a revolt. It was not a pretty thing for the Roman government to respond to your citywide riots. If you love history, you're aware of that. Carthage, Athens, right? There's a lot of ancient cities that were completely destroyed by the Romans when they rioted against them. And so they're like, look, we need to calm down. You guys are going to get us killed. And they, for two hours straight, chanted over the person trying to save their lives. And so Paul is writing a letter to a people in a city who had been really good at talking, but they hadn't been so good at listening. And so he writes them this letter, and he says in Ephesians 4.29, this sentence, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And this sentence, while short, is profound. It's completely flipping the script around how we think about communication. The whole center of communication for Paul is not the default, which is typically self-centered. It's something that's new that he's wanting to teach them that's other-centered. Right? I mean, this summer, my wife, um, at the height of her pregnancy, I was standing with my daughter, who's seven, and she looked at me one day, and I kind of had, I guess, a tighter t-shirt on, and she was like, Daddy, you look pregnant just like Mommy. And she walked up to me, and she grabbed my belly, and she shook it the way she would shake Jenny's belly. And I'm like, sweetheart, Daddy's not pregnant. We'll, we'll have that conversation in a few years. Um, that's okay right? We should probably not say that because then a couple of weeks later we're out in public and there's a lady walking by and she's like, mommy, is she pregnant? And we're like, no, she's not pregnant. Don't say you're saying that loud, right? Because the default way of speaking and talking is very much self-centered. And Paul comes along and writes this sentence that says, no, no, no. It's according to their needs. 
What they need is essential. What they need is the most important thing, which is takes us back to that tapping song experiment we had earlier. You see, what was fascinating about that experiment was that it was actually a psychological experiment done with about 150 people who were tapping. And they were asked before they went into the room, when they saw the song, how many people, what's the percentage of people who are going to respond to that tap, who are going to know what it is you're tapping? The tappers confidently said, oh, it's at least 50% of the people who are going to hear this are going to know this song. After the experiment, as people were leaving, they questioned the listeners and they said, hey, how many of you knew that song? And what they found was while the tappers had anticipated 50% of the people knowing the song, in reality, it was more like one out of 50 knew the song, 2%, not 50%. But the findings of that experiment, I actually think gives us a huge insight to our biggest struggle and actually Paul's wisdom to us in the midst of it. You see, we as humans have a problem. We assume that the person sitting across from us in the room has the same kind of mind that we do, that we assume they know what we're thinking because we know what we're thinking. They assume that our perspective is their perspective too. And we forget how truly miraculous and amazing communication is. In fact, as I'm speaking to you right now, we're experiencing something that I think borders on scientific magic, right? See, inside of my brain, there is a bunch of neurochemicals being fired across neurons that are then activating an electrical signal that's traveling down to multiple places simultaneously. One of them is in my diaphragm and my lungs, causing breath to be kind of built up so that it can be pushed through this airway. While that's happening, there are another electrical signals being sent to some vocal cord muscles that are tightening and constricting and changing their shape based on the electrical signals coming from my brain on the words that I thought I want to say. And as the air is pushed through the airway and the muscles in my vocal cords begin to tighten and shape, then simultaneously there is another set of electrical signals being sent to my mouth and my tongue to shape my mouth and my tongue in order that as the air comes out of my mouth, it is put in a modulation and a pressure wave that sounds like what I'm currently saying right now that then travels through this medium that we call air that's comprised of about 80% nitrogen, a little bit of oxygen, and a variety of other chemicals. As it travels through that air, causing different pressure shifts that we would call sound waves, it then hits your earlobe. As it travels into your smaller, ever increasingly tinier earlobe, hopefully with not a lot of wax, it hits a little thing that we call the eardrum. When those pressure waves hit the eardrum, three little tiny bones begin to vibrate in accordance with the pressure waves that are currently coming out of my mouth. Those three bones vibrating cause an electrical signals to pop and to move up to my brain where your brain and where neurochemicals begin to fire and you start to hear the words that are coming out of my mouth that started up here in my brain. That is amazing. Okay? It is. It, it really, truly is amazing. But it is also the problem that we have as humans is because what starts up here, I assume, is going to land up here the way it started up here. And what I fail and what we fail as humans to realize is that your perspective and my perspective are often different. And what does Paul say? Paul says your starting point is not you. It's them. They are your starting point. So you need to understand their perspective. Their perspective is key in having a functional, helpful, 
wholesome conversation because it's their needs that are going to drive the discussion. And so how do we understand someone's perspective? I want to give you a framework. It's, it's not comprehensive in the fullest sense, but it's a helpful framework so that when you interact with people, whether it's the person you wake up beside in the morning, whether it's the person you call on the phone that lives in some other city, whether it's a coworker or whether it's the small little human that you're responsible for as a parent, that whatever that person is that you find yourself sitting across from trying to talk to, that this framework will help you go into that with a little bit of an equipping to understand their perspective. And I've kind of alliterated it. There's three P's that I think are really helpful in gaining someone's perspective. It puts us in a better position, in fact, to be able to speak to them when we have these three P's. The first P is their personality. The second P is their present circumstances. And the third P is their past baggage. These three P's are present in every conversation you have, every single time, not just in you, but in them too. And if you have an ability to parse out and to unpack what it is in those three P's that are shaping, you you actually kind of overcome one of those common barriers that is, I said this, you heard that. Because we've all been on the other side of saying something that we watch as it lands and we're like, oh man, uh, okay, what I meant to say was. If you've ever said, well, what I meant was, you've been on the other side of this divide. And having these three Ps kind of helps us unpack it. So the first thing I want to do um, right, is give you a little bit of, to make it simple, I'm going to make it an object lesson because we're going to kind of go through a ton of stuff, right? So these three Ps, right, are these three different items. You have someone's past baggage. You have someone's present circumstances, like what they're currently carrying in life. And then you have their personality, which colors how they see the world, right? And so this right here, whenever you have a conversation with someone, I want you to visualize you're always sitting across from someone that's currently looks just like this. Okay? Slightly ridiculous, a little overprepared for whatever moment they're in, but this is what you're having a conversation with. Someone that is seeing the world differently than how you see the world. Someone is carrying some things into this conversation that they're currently dealing with. And someone who has baggage filled with things that they've dealt with in their past. And that when we understand these three Ps are present in every conversation we have, it actually puts us in a better position to understand their perspective. And so what I want to do is introduce you to a very simple framework, not simplistic, um, but it is simple enough that regardless, you don't have to have um, an undergrad in psychology or a doctorate in human beings to, um, to get this paradigm around personality. I want to teach you four colors. These four colors correspond to, um, we won't get into all the kind of the nuances of it, but it's essentially there's for thousands of years, there's been this um, kind of four view of human personality. Um, and while there are currently other uh, different paradigms around personality, this one I think is the most portable and the most practical for everyday life. And it's been scientifically verified multiple times. And so it's, it's confident enough that I can teach you this paradigm and it will actually help you. All right, and it's around these four colors. And so you've got the, the yellow, red, blue, and green, right? So these are the four colors. The way you can understand this framework is they're divided based on two different components of how they function and how they, um, what, what kind of is the dominant thing. You've got introversion and extroversion. Introversion and extroversion, to kind of give you an insight, introverts, they're um, 
Extroverts are the people that we kind of hear that word and we think, oh, they're like the super social ones. And that can be true. But the biggest thing to know about an extrovert is their energy is out here. They get energy from out here. They respond to energy out here. An introvert, their energy is on the inside and they value that inside energy. An extrovert, uh, one of the ways, clearest ways to identify an extrovert is they tend to talk before they think. Right? Because why? Their energy's out here. They're dumping their brain out, and then they're trying to figure it out. That's, that's an extrovert. They sometimes say things they have to walk back. They like talking. Um, the introvert is going to be more inner-oriented. Their dynamics around their thought life, how they think, their processing, all that inner stuff. So they think before they talk. Neither is good nor bad. It's just as is. Now, that's a little bit of a spectrum. And so there's rarely ever do you meet someone who is an extreme extrovert or an extreme introvert. Typically, we fall somewhere along in that spectrum. I am an extreme introvert. Um, the stage deceives you, but I am a hyper introvert. In fact, if you want to know where my office is, it's back here in this dark corner. No joke. I sit back there. There is two lights. It, there is no AC. It is just kind of pure darkness, no natural light, and I love it. Absolutely love it. No humans, just wires and a desk where I work and think. Um, so I'm an extreme introvert, which is, you know, I'm probably far on the scale than the average person, but that kind of gives you a framework. Then you've got the task and people orientedness. All right. And those are the other two sides. And what you can see is that based on what I just told you, a yellow is a people extroverted. A red is an extroverted task. A green is an introverted people and a blue is an introverted task. Okay. That doesn't mean much. So let me dig into it real quick to help you. Because the reality is, is that all of us have these four people in our lives. And some of us are, one, all of us are one of these. Um, there is a secondary component. There's, I'm going to skim over some of this because I don't have time to walk you through a 90-minute seminar on personalities. But I want to introduce you enough so that you can walk out of this room with a little bit of a color filter to know how you are wired and most likely how other people around you are wired too because they're impacting how you interact. The, the first one is the playful. I, I created these words to help you. Uh, yellows tend to be playful. The reds tend to be power-oriented, um, controlled. That sounds bad, but it's not. They, they just like to be decision makers. Um, the greens are peaceful, calm, and blues are really precise and detailed, okay? So these four colors, we're going to keep this slide on the screen because I want to walk you through enough so that you can be like, oh, that's my husband or, oh, that's me, right? So the first playful yellow, these are the people who you can, as you're having a conversation, they always love people. They see the best in circumstances. They see the best in people. Um, a yellow, um, oftentimes they're like, oh, I really like that guy. Or man, she's awesome. They rarely ever notice the negative in people because it's, it's great. People are great. They love fun. They bring joy and laughter to the rooms they're in. They make the room happier. They also, depending on their scale of where they are in that extroversion, they are the life of the party. 
I was in a meeting this week with a guy who was an extreme extroverted yellow, and he was talking about his 40th birthday. And he was like, oh, yeah, me and my wife, we threw, the par- we threw me a 40th birthday party. I was like, oh, you threw yourself a party. Oh, yeah, we invited the entire city block. We actually shut down our city block for my party. We had 150 people there. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? He's like, it was awesome. I loved it. Why? Because he's yellow. He's like, who's going to be there? The more, the merrier. You can look in like a crowd. The, the, the little yellows are like butterflies flying around the room, pollinating flowers. Because they want to they wanna talk to everybody. Strangers are just friends they haven't met yet, right? Like, I mean, that is an essential yellow person. They also can be forgetful. They can also sometimes miss details because they're more people-oriented. And they're extroverted. They are quintessential talk before you think people. And so what they need, though, if you have a yellow in their life or you you are a yellow, what's important to know is that oftentimes because there's such a people-orientedness, because there's an extroversion, um, they're, they're people who can be really um, hurt by not being invited, not being included. They're sensitive to that. They are also um, sensitive to, to, remember, they're people-oriented. So um, you can easily offend a yellow by ignoring them or kind of looking past them. You can usually spot the yellows because if you walk in a room and you don't speak, they're going to speak to you, right? Because yellows are externally focused, people-oriented people, which kind of sets it a little bit in difference from the red, which I said is powerful. And it really is more that these, I say powerful because these are the people who get things done. If there's any personality type that tends to be more drawn towards leadership, it would be the red. They typically have vision. They know what they want to do. They want to accomplish it. They got a plan. They're confident. They're decisive. These are the ones when you're in a meeting, they already know how to solve the problem, even if they don't know what the problem is, and they're telling you how to solve it, and they've got the plan to do it, and they've already broke you into teams to to get this thing accomplished because that's what they do. They get things done. They do have an external, that kind of extroversion oriented, but they're task-oriented which makes them great at accomplishing something. It makes them great at getting things done. If you're not doing it fast enough, you might hear them say, hurry up. Or if you're really not meeting their kind of level of expectation, they'll just say, oh, fine, I'll do it myself. That's, that's a red dominant kind of, I'm going to lead, I'm going to do things. And, and they're bold. And, and, and I say they're controlling, but it's not in a negative, like dark sense. It's just that they, they know what they think you should do. And they're confident about it, too. Like, you don't need to think about it. I already figured it out. Go do that. You're there to make their world happen. That's a red. And what reds value, where you can offend a red in your life, is that because they're so task-oriented, because they're about moving forward and getting things done, they actually value loyalty. And that when you, when you do something Or when they get a sense that you're not loyal to them, it actually hurts them. And even though they come across like commanding, follow me, underneath that is a sense that they want to be loved and that they want the relationship there to be a loyalty in it. And that simultaneously they want to be valued. You can usually spot a red because um, they, they don't like someone taking credit for their work. Okay? And for the reds in the room, you just, you know what I'm talking about when someone's like, a business meeting they're like yeah we got this accomplished boss don't worry and it's like that red is like there was no we i stayed up late i got this done that was 
me. No, no, we. Let's be clear. These people are dead weights. You should fire them and let me take over the division because I have a plan to double our profits in the next year. They're holding us back because I did it. Right? There are other personality types. They don't care that they don't get credit, but reds do. And, and while that may sound funny, it's also true in that reds want to see the value of the relationship. So if you're married to a red, one of the things that's really helpful is to acknowledge how they contribute to the relationship. And how they bring value and what they do. Don't skip over what they contribute, even if you think what they're contributing is not very much, which is possible. But they're extroverted, task-oriented, and they, they can run and they can charge. Um, and then you move down to the um, blue. And the word precise is um, quite fitting because these tend to be very detailed-oriented people. They're perfectionists. They... Um, they're, they're really great in a business sense because they bring a lot of quality control. These tend to be the, the accountants, the engineers, the detail-oriented people. Um, what makes blues kind of unique is that they can have an incredible eye to detail, but they also tend to be creative or analytical and sensitive too. So they're a little bit of, they come across cold because they're introverted task-oriented, but they're actually usually very sensitive underneath the surface. Um, they are really good at anticipating obstacles and coming up with plans to overcome them. These are people that you want if you were ever stranded on a desert island. They're going to be the way that they're going to be the ones that get you off if the Reds let them contribute to the plan. Okay? The Reds may get you drowned or eaten by sharks, but the Blue, go with the Blue because they'll build the boat that'll get you off the island. Okay? So the blues um, tend to be, they can come across negative or judgmental. They can say things like, that'll never work. Or have you thought that through? They're the ones that you don't want to rush them into to, to making a decision. They're going to want to think about it. They value quiet. They value kind of time to just sit and soak. I am a blue. This is who I am. And so that's why I can be like, oh, yeah, this is true. Um, uh, blues relationally, they, they, so their needs comes out in that I kind of alluded to their sensitivity. Um, where it comes for them is really in their safety. And that's a word that you'll read in their literature. And it's not like that they're risk averse. Um, that may be true for some of them. But the safety piece is really can I trust the circumstances and can I trust the relationship? And so just speaking honestly, right, blues tend to be very private. We tend to be kind of locked up. My wife um, will tell you it's hard to get a read on where I am, how I'm doing on the inside. When, um, like, it's funny, I can see it. When, when I have a moment where I want to start sharing my emotions or I want to, like, be sensitive for a second, like, Jenny could be getting ready to launch an airplane or do something dramatic, and she just stops because she's like, oh, my goodness, this is like an eclipse. Because I'm like, you know, I've just been feeling this a lot. And, you know, like, and I just start talking. And she's like, nobody move. He's sharing his emotions. We don't want to mess this up. And it's because a lot of times it's just like I live so much inside that it, I, I don't comfortably venture outside. And, and so for me, my friendships look a lot different. I test out friendships. I tell people stuff, and then I wait to hear if other people have heard those things. Because I, what I want to know is, can I trust you? Can I trust it if I share the things that I'm walking with on the inside that you can hold them like they're state secrets and not violate the trust? And f not for everybody, but for blue personality types, that's a reality. When someone's like, oh, I was talking to someone, they said this about you. I'm like... 
I will never tell them anything ever again. Right? Because that piece of safety got violated inside of me. The other thing that blues need is space and silence. They just need quiet time. They need a place to process because they, they are, if the yellow is the quintessential, I'm going to talk before I think. The blue is the quintessential, I am not going to talk until I have thought this thing through 17 different angles. And so these two kind of extremes are where you see that. And so they need that space to be able to process through it. What's interesting is that um, each one of these, these colors have a different way of manipulating. Okay. So the last one is peaceful green. And these people are awesome. They're the reason that our species is not constantly in war with each other. They are the reason the world works. They are agreeable. They are reliable. They're great listeners. Um, They make great bosses. They make wonderful friends. Um, They are the oil that keeps families and businesses and sports teams moving. Why? Because they're so calm and they're so just, yeah, that sounds great. Right? Greens are like no big deal. I'm good with whatever. They're, they're like kind of emotionally chilled. They're not like wildly kind of, they tend to be very patient. They can fall into the trap of people pleasing. You can typically tell you have a green in your life when you try to pick a restaurant because um, if your dinner table or you're kind of getting ready to pick your dinner table and you're like, hey, what we should eat? The greens are going to be like, I don't care, whatever, you know, just pick the restaurant and I'm good with that. And then you're like, oh, okay, this restaurant. And they're like, actually, I don't like that restaurant. And then someone keeps talking, they throw out, you know, that's, when, when I said any restaurant, I meant all but those two. And the red is like the one wanting to pick the decision. It's like, no, 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 I don't care what you want. We're going here because I've given you two. And if you really had, you should have told me those two in the first place because I would have told you a different restaurant. But now, uh-oh, we're going there, right? And the blue is like, I read the reviews on Yelp. And did you know that they had an E. coli outbreak there last week? I don't think we should go to that place. It's going to mess us all up, right? And the yellow is like, it's going to be so much fun. We're just going to hang out together. We're going to have a great time. And the green's kind of like, I didn't like that restaurant. And so they kind of like like sort of sulk a little bit and drag their feet, right? Reds and greens, um, so opposites oftentimes attract. It's not like a general rule, but it is common enough that you can kind of draw some conclusions from it. Um, and so my favorite thing is to watch relationships because like you can normally tell when you're sitting with a red and a green and that like the, the restaurant is probably one of their biggest marriage issues because it's just indicative of all the other struggles in their life. The red wants to make a decision. The green's like, ah. Like, sort of, like I told you I was okay, but I don't actually, I'm not in an Italian mood tonight. Well, what mood are you in? I don't know. Give me some other restaurants and I'll tell you if that's not those two. That's a green. Okay. And so what ends up happening is all these various personality types, we do life with them. We interact with them. Greens manipulate with stubbornness. Um, They drag their feet. Reds manipulate with tone and volume. A red typically will scream. They get louder. They get more forceful. Uh, Yellows, they charm. They they give you flattery. They butter you up when they want to kind of get you to do something they want to do. Blues, um, they tend to be very cold and silent and moody, right? They just kind of walk around pouting like a three-year-old. This is all our personality. Remember, right? Like this is what's happening. This shapes how we see the world. So my personality is present in every conversation. And so to kind of put some kind of feet to this thing, right? Let me tell you what this looks like, practically speaking, right? So if you're red and you're married to a green or you're parenting a green or you lead a group of teams that are green, what can happen is that you can easily go in and you can run over them. 
because you're task-oriented, extrovert, so you come in like a freight train. Because Why? Because you showed up to work today. You got your three items you're going to get accomplished. And come hell or high water, you're going to get those things done. And nobody, including the people who work for you, are going to get in the way of that. So you come in and all these like... You know, just really nice, agreeable, kind of calm greens are sitting in the room. They're like, all right, let's work. You know, and they're people oriented. So they, they like enjoy being with each other. And you come in, you're like, why is it, why isn't this done? And we need this today. And I needed that an hour ago. And like, you know, and all of a sudden you just raise the stress level in the room. And now all the greens are freaking out on the inside because they don't like stressful environments. They like harmony. They like calm. They like, Right, and reds, they like to ratchet up the dial and turn the heat on and get things happening. They love urgent deadlines. And so red and greens have to be mindful. A red can come over and walk right over all the greens. And so a red, when you have a green, if it's your child, okay? So like my daughter is a green, my wife is a green, I live in a green house. Okay? And so I am blue with red mixed in. Because we all have primary and then a secondary. My, I am precise. I am hyper-task-oriented. My default is not to think about how you're feeling or to care about calm and harmony. I want things done, and I want them done right. So if we were going on vacation or we are doing some activity, um, you know, like, I, I, we're storming the beaches of Normandy, people. And we got the backup plans and the plans to the plans. And, like, we've thought through what happens if the car goes flat, tire, and what happens with this. And, like, we've thought through it all. And I can, like, run at a pace. I remember one time Jenny and Ella were traveling with me on a work trip. And I was going from, like, and it was, they were kind of tagging along. with. And Jenny finally looked at me. She's like, time out. Like, you're crazy. I can't keep up with you. I, like, I don't know what's wrong with you. Like, you just, you're, you're, you're like killing us over here. So we're going to like go and hang out at the, like the place we're staying because we just can't keep up with you. And I'm like, oh, okay. Cause you know, they want to stop and smell the roses. And I'm like, somebody should have trimmed those roses. Cause all the thorn almost hit me when I was rushing by it. I'm serious. I, I like, I, I'm noticing why the roses weren't cut properly. Like Ella and I were on a little daddy-daughter date and we're sitting at the windowsill and I'm looking out and we're trying, you know, she's just like happy and talking, eating her little donut. And I'm like, look at that bush. Like somebody needs to trim that thing. There are like some wildly sporadic hairs. It's like, look at that thing, Ella. And she's like, oh, okay. You know, and it's just because like somebody needs to fix that problem. I'm like where's the manager at? I'll tell him. And, and so we, we have to be cognizant of our wiring because I could unintentionally in the pursuit of loving them crush them. And the challenge is, is my house going to be a greenhouse where they can flourish? Or am I going to destroy them? Because I want to step in as the gardener and completely ignore how they were created and wired to be flourished and nurtured. And we have to be cognizant of the colors that we're interacting and how our colors shape the conversations. If you're a yellow and you're interacting with a blue, right? Like a yellow loves to say things. A blue doesn't say things unless things have been thoroughly thought through. So um, yellows are very impulsive. Blues are repulsive. They don't like impulsivity. And so, like, if you're a yellow or if you're a blue trying to parent a yellow, you're, you're going to overreact to their impulsivity because you're, gonna, you're so far away from their impulsivity that you're going to think it's something morally wrong with them. And you're going to want to crush it out or, or kind of work it out, come up with a discipline plan to remove their impulsivity because it is robbing them of their potential. Right? 
So our colors affect how we interact, how we love, and how we lead. The last two Ps, just briefly, is your present circumstances. When you interact with someone, recognize that they, they potentially they have other stuff going on in life. And that personality, what happens is that the present and the past mutes and magnifies their color. Right? And so when a red gets stressed, their tone, their volume goes up. So present circumstances mute or magnify kind of their colors. And it's helpful to understand that. So when you're sitting across the table, you want to be mindful of like what's going on in their life. If you're a task-oriented person, it means typically you have to ask the people you're doing life with, hey, what's currently stressing you out? What's current, what are you walking through? Because a red and a blue can lead a meeting or have a conversation. Like Jenny will sometimes be like, I was like, oh, I met this person. And she was like, oh, do they have a wife? Do they have kids? I'm like, I don't know. I didn't ask them that. Why would I have asked them if they had a wife or kids? Like, I don't, that had nothing to do with what we were trying to accomplish. She's like, you seriously spent three hours with them and you never had a conversation about anything in their personal life? It's like, no, I didn't care about their personal life. Why would I talk about their personal life? Right? But if you're a red or a blue and you're leading other people to, you need to ask, hey, how are you doing this week? What's going on in your life? Because I guarantee you, if their mother or their father is dealing with sickness and they might bury them in a few weeks, they're bringing that to the table. And you need to be mindful of that. If they're walking through some struggles or if they're an accountant and it's April, you need to be aware of that because that's shaping what they come to the table with. They've got a lot of stress on their back. They've got a lot of things they're going through. Right? In our household, one of the things I have to remind myself frequently when I walk into the greenhouse is that we're a family in a new season with a newborn, which changes the dynamics from what we're used to. So you step into the room aware of those things and how those things are shaping their life. And if you're interacting with someone, you also want to remember there's the past too. And this is the one that we can easily forget about because on the surface, people don't volunteer their past. We tend to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, we're past our past or that was in the past. And the past is not behind you, people. Past, the past is in you. And most people you interact with have not moved past their past. And it's present. And while you're not a counselor and you're not necessarily sitting down saying, hey, tell me everything that's inside of this thing, the reality is, is that they bring this to the table. And when they sit down beside, this thing is there with them. And it could be something as simple as you saying, hey, tell me your story. What was life like growing up for you? Because it's helpful, especially if you're going to love, lead, and do life with these people. You want to know what's in their bags. Because if someone grew up in a household where things were not healthy, that's still present in your current household too. If someone dealt with abuse or they grew up in a household with alcoholics or drug addicts, I'm telling you, like, you'd be amazed at how our past impacts our present. And that there are wounds. I, I shared my story last week, how just growing up, Learning the narrative of my life was I wasn't wanted because my father had walked out on me. That created this narrative. And every time I showed up in every conversation I had with almost every male, that was always in my bag. I wasn't wanted by him, and I'm probably not wanted by you too. And I had to become aware that I'm always carrying this thing around, and it's always in here. And if I'm going to experience 
life, if I'm going to move forward in conversation, I need to know what's in this bag. People's failed relationships are in here. Their biggest regrets and hurts are in here. The big and the small things that have accumulated through their life, they're all sitting inside this bag. And unless they've done the intentional work, it's still there. And what ends up happening at the end of the day is that we sit across from people. And what we're doing is we're not having conversations with them. We're actually having a conversation with someone who looks just like this. And if you and I are going to do this well, we've got to see it all. And if you're thinking this seems like a lot of work, it is a lot of work. Conversations, communication, and relationships are a lot of work. And to help you understand this, this is just a really great question. Whenever you see an overreaction, whenever you see someone respond above and beyond what should have been a normal response, your first thought should be to look at their back or look at their bag. Because overreactions, above and beyond reactions, are typically reactions to something underneath the surface. There's something that maybe you contributed to or maybe you didn't. And so whenever I make that mistake with someone, I'll typically stop the conversation and say, look, um, clearly what I said was wrong. Um, I'd love to hear what you heard when I said that. Because I think what I said and what you heard were two different things. And this is hard work. It's hard work to walk beside someone and to love them and to lead them or to raise them or to be married to them. But remember, Paul is writing this to a group of people in the city of Ephesus whose lives have been changed and transformed. And he's talking to them as Christians. And so he's saying and reminding these group of Christians, hey, what's at the core of our faith? It's Jesus. He's the center of what we do. And he encourages them throughout this entire letter. Hey, I want to take, I want you to take your cue on what to do from what you see Jesus do. And at the core of this Christian message calls the gospel, what is it that Jesus did? Jesus demonstrated God's profound love and pursuit by how God stepped into human skin. He stepped into our world and he dwelt with us. He became like us in order to lead us. He became like us in order to love us. And if you're going to love and engage according to their needs, then you've got to step in to their perspective too. That you and I have to take our cue from what we see Jesus do. To understand their past and how they bring that into every conversation. To recognize where they are in the present and to see how their personality covers and colors the conversation. Because this is exactly what Jesus did. He came down to earth so that he could lead us to heaven. And that if we're going to lead and love the people in our lives, we have to step into their world if we're going to move them into a better one. And that it does require time and it does require humility and it does require grace to be the backdrop and the operating system of every conversation. But what I can say confidently in light of last week's message and emphatically in this one and the message of Ephesians in general is that it is worth it. And not only is it worth it, it brings wholeness to the people. And so just imagine, what if as a people we committed to see people for all three of the pieces that shape their perspective and to do the work of actually loving and leading them from where they are? Imagine how our kids would flourish. Imagine how our marriages, our relationships would begin to look different. 
Imagine how our workplaces would be transformed. And the only thing we did different is just changed how we talked. But if you change how you talk, you'll start to transform every environment you find yourself in. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.